thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast discussing the paper Association Between Enteral Feeding and Gastrointestinal Complications in Children Receiving Extracorporeal Life Support, a Retrospective Cohort Study. My name is Kenneth Christopher, and I am Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. LaVon Toome from Edge Hill University in England, who holds an honorary clinical and research contract in pediatric intensive care at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool. Dr. Toome is a professor of critical care nursing and a clinical scientist with a focus on nutrition in critically ill children, particularly around enteral feeding. Dr. Toome is first author of the JPEN article we will discuss. Dr. Toome, thank you for joining us. Thank you. My first question is, what motivated you to do the study? Thank you. I'm a professor and academic nurse, but I still maintain some clinical practice in the pediatric ICU. And this is one of only five funded pediatric ECMO centers in the UK for children. And as such, we have quite a large population of these children. And I was a specialist ECMO nurse for many years. Now, our unit has always been quite proactive around starting enteral feeding early. And when I read other papers around feeding children on ECMO, and attend conferences, scientific meetings where clinicians say they don't feed them enterally for fear of GI complications, then I began to think, well, you know, we need to look at this. Our practice of early feeding, we need to see, well, how many complications do we actually have? I didn't think we had any, but you don't know until you look properly. And, and what if and or are they associated with enteral feeding? So that's really why I did the study. So based on your own practice and the fact that you had the research infrastructure, um, that made it somewhat easier, number one, to ask the research questions, but also to implement the study. Yeah. I've always found that the, the most interesting studies that I do are always linked on a clinical question. And the clinical question can be as simple as a, as a medical student asking me a hard question that I don't understand or I don't know, or looking into the literature as you have, um, realizing that they're wasn't a lot of information to be able to base a decision upon. So I commend you for researching a, a, an important clinical question. Um, second question I have is, why did you choose your specific study design? So I wouldn't say our or any retrospective cohort design is ideal, uh, but pragmatically, it's very difficult to use any other design in this group of children. They're relatively rare. Uh, and, and to get adequate numbers, we had to go back five and a half years. So we started collecting the data very robustly when we started contributing to the ELSO database, which is an international database of, of patients on ECMO. And so, you know, so because we had to go back five and a half years to get sufficient numbers, this really limits the ability to study this prospectively. Uh, and conducting an RCT of EN or not in this cohort would not be ethical. Many clinicians, most clinicians would not have equipoise and obtaining truly conformed parental consent would be extremely challenging in this situation. So although it's not an ideal design, it's what all other studies that are published in this group of children or patients have, have used because there's really little other choice. Absolutely. And I think that there's an important point to underscore. Sometimes it's not possible to do the ideal study. Sometimes it's not feasible. Sometimes it's not ethical. And the difference between a, if this study was prospective and a retrospective 
a design in terms of the quality of the data, in terms of what you can carry forward, is probably not worth the effort, simply because with a perspective study, yes, you can control all the things that you collect, um, and you may be able to collect things that are unusual or rare, like blood for biomarkers, et cetera, but the, the level of evidence will be quite similar um, to a retrospective design. And you were lucky in some ways to have the ability to look back into data, but this is, of course, related to the, the foresight in terms of beginning the collection of robust data uh, several years prior. And so I meet sometimes with investigators who say, well, how do I start collecting data? I said, you start collecting data by starting to collect data, like actually making a plan and going forward. And sometimes it can take up to five years to get enough patients to be able to do a study. Um, and so I, I commend you for, for thinking broadly in terms of uh, working with the established uh, research enterprise that you have to be able to complete the study. On topic of completing the study, what was the most difficult part of completing the study? So I think with any retrospective study, I would say the most challenging part or aspect is, is missing data and verifying the accuracy of data that's in electronic health records. Some of it wasn't in the ELSO database, we had to go back to electronic health records. So I involved few three junior medical staff in training as data collectors their authors on the paper, and we had one of the ECMO coordinators as well. So we had to really have several meetings to be very clear about the definition. They were categorizing things or, you know, classifying things such as the primary reason for ECMO and stuff. And, and so, you know, people have this, you know, you think it's clear cut, but actually when you, until you sit down and, uh, and look at it, it's, it's not always, you know, uh, they might think, well, it's always cardiac, but in fact, it's not always cardiac. And, you know, so is that, that sort of thing, I think when you're going back and you're classifying things, you've got multiple data collectors, that is always challenging. And this study wasn't funded either. So everyone involved in this took undertook this, including myself, <laughs> undertook this work on top of their usual job. And of course, that's challenging at times. So these are probably the most challenging aspects of completing it. Yeah, that's interesting in terms of when people decide what patients belong into what categories how to define specific things. Um, it's really up to the researchers. And unless you're using an established system or um, an acceptable way of classifying patients that maybe other researchers have used based on lab values or something hard, it can be very nuanced. At the same time, that gives the investigator freedom. Um, the most important thing is to very accurately describe how you classify patients so that someone in the future can replicate that exactly or as close to exact as you have so that the work can be shown to be accurate in different settings, et cetera, et cetera. I often get asked, well, how did you decide to put this patient in that group or this particular cut point? And sometimes it's based on prior literature, but oftentimes it's just, I decided. And that's the freedom that you have as an investigator. Obviously, it's easier to replicate established patterns from prior investigators, but sometimes um, you're doing work that just requires a lot of uh, collaboration in terms of deciding, uh, especially specific patients. Um, so, you know, a kudos to you and your group for, for working on this so diligently in terms of creating uh, very good data in places where it might be difficult. 
My next question is, what was your most surprising finding? Well, we expected there to be some more uh, gastrointestinal complications with children who received enteral nutrition compared to those who didn't, and there was, but really the majority of these were mild, defined really as feed intolerance, and for us and most, well, nearly all units in the UK anyway, this is largely defined by high gastric residual volumes. By that, I mean our definition is over five mils per kilo. This is fairly common. But for me, the most interesting thing was that those receiving exclusive breast milk or human milk compared to those who received any degree of formula, formula feed, had a much lower incidence of GI complications. Now, all PICU and NICU healthcare professionals believe that breast milk is better for critically ill children and infants, neonates, where possible. But there's often been little strong evidence to really substantiate this. So I think this is really very useful. Now, disappointingly, the breastfeeding rate in Northwest England, where this study took place, is really poor, around 30%. Uh, and one aspect of this study that I've really focused on, particularly in my feeding back and the education of the specialist ECMO nurse team who run the circuits, uh, is that they have the opportunity to educate and influence this. They spend the most amount of time with parents, mothers, and really, this is important, they have a potential to influence there. Of note, around 41% of kids still receive some parental nutrition during ECLS. Now, this was either because their enteral nutrition was, intake was very low, uh, although it was some, but it was very low, or they continued to have an increased uh, serum lactate, so signs of inadequate systemic perfusion, and in which case we don't start feeding. But they were the most surprising findings for me. It's very interesting that the corollary benefit of the actual study was to potentially influence the mother's feeding of, of the child, and especially a child who is sick and spends a lot of time in, in the hospital itself. I find that that particular benefit to the study, studies don't always usually benefit participants, but I think that that's a very interesting take on the actual work that you did. Um, if you had to do the study over, what would you change? I think probably the main thing I would change is to try and get funding for a number of reasons. Firstly, you know, it allows you to employ a statistician to undertake more detailed analysis. I mean, I'm a quantitative researcher and I can do a certain amount of statistics, but some took me considerable time where a statistician would have done them much more quickly. <laughs> and another thing which I think would be really useful that if we hadn't got funding, we could have invited all five pediatric ECMO centres in the UK to contribute their data then we would have a much larger data set, probably around 500, maybe more, albeit at the risk of some centre-based confounders effects, which would need adjusting for. But I think that would have been the most useful thing. And I would always advise people to try and get funding. Yeah, I, I second that very, very strongly with the caveat that the majority of the observational studies that I've done in my career, I call them uh, cost neutral, where I had access to a data set, which I was very lucky to have, and built a very large ICU data set of 90,000 patients because there were two centers over 20 years, et cetera. But I put in a lot of, a lot of my own time and work. Um, but it is possible to do something like this that um, perhaps changes practice without funds. It's difficult, but it is possible. Obtaining funding is not a trivial matter. It's, it can be quite difficult and very challenging. But the point being that I want to echo 
uh, to junior investigators and other people considering doing studies, especially with an electronic medical record, is, is that you can do this on a shoestring budget or no budget. It is possible. Granted that the study may have been much richer having five separate centers, absolutely, but you probably had enough patients to have adequate study power. Um, and so it was, it was a way to get the information out there that was essentially cost neutral. It cost you and your colleagues time and effort, uh, et cetera, but it is possible to do uh, studies that don't require external funding. It's difficult, but it is possible. Um, so I commend you for doing such work over such a long period of time um, without external funding. What advice now do you have for other investigators? So I guess I'm going to go back to that. And what I would say is, I'll reiterate, if, if possible, do try and get some funding. It may not be a lot. It may be some hospital charity funding. It may be whatever to enable you to spend a little bit more time collecting the data and undertaking the analysis. I mean, retrospective cohort studies always have a risk of bias, which we need to be mindful of. But if they're the only designs we can use to examine an issue such as this, then they just need to be done as well as possible. So I guess, yeah, going back, funding, ideally. Buy you a lot of stuff, I think. Absolutely. I'll say my funded studies are very different from my non-funded studies in terms of the, the level of, of detail and also the external uh, expertise that one can bring in, like you said, in terms of working with uh, experienced statisticians who can do much more nuanced work quickly, as you underscored as well. Last question is, what are you studying now? So currently, I'm leading a multi-center trial in 20 PICUs in the UK to determine if not uh, routinely measuring gastric residual to guide enteral feeding, so at least six hourly, is non-inferior in mechanically ventilated children. So our primary outcome is days free from mechanical ventilation at day 30 with a co-superiority outcome of energy target achievement at 72 hours. And we will randomize 4,700 children over the next two years. The trial has been running now, recruiting for two months. So that's the big thing. And I've also just finished a prospective observational study, and which was funded, <laughs> to examine the impact of protein intake and muscle wasting in critically ill children during and three months after critical illness. And we're just currently writing this up now. We've completed this and we're just writing this up. Wonderful. That sounds like a really interesting uh, group of studies. Thank you to Dr. Toom for your expertise. It was a delight to discuss your paper and your work. And we also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. This is Kenneth Christopher signing off. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.